Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Peterson and Stephen Peterson, authors of The Sly, Leland, Bonds, and the Star-Crossed Pittsburgh Pirates. Our guests today are Richard Peterson and Stephen Peterson. They are the authors of this book, The Slide, Leyland, Bonds, and the Star-Crossed Pittsburgh Pirates. Richard Peterson, we'll start with you. What was the Pirates team you started following when you were younger? I, this really dates me, but I saw my first Pirate game in 1948 at, uh, at Old Force Field, and they won, and Ralph Kiner hit two home runs. I thought Kiner would hit two home runs in every game, uh, and that they would win every game. And didn't quite turn out that way, but I've been following the Pirates for a long, long time. How was the team that year? They were good, oddly enough. Uh, they were battling the Dodgers. The Dodgers had won the pennant in 1947. That was Jackie Robinson's rookie year. And they were battling the Dodgers all the way through the 1948 season. They finished in fourth place. Uh, then they went into um, a nosedive and never really quite came out of it all through my childhood. <laughs> so so I've, seen, I've seen a great deal of losing pirate baseball. Who were your favorite pirates as a kid? Well, everybody worshipped Ralph Kiner. Uh, he, was a, he was a star, and he was probably the only really outstanding ball player they, they had. The, the story was that, uh, that nobody left the ballpark until Kiner had his last at bat. Even if they were losing 13-0, there was a possibility that Kiner was going to hit a, hit a home run. But I was small, and I was a little league pitcher. And there, there was this crafty pitcher named Murray Dixon, and I thought he was just, just terrific. And he, he won 20 games for them when they finished in next to the last place, and I thought that was wonderful. Then he lost 20 games the following season, so he, he was my favorite. Stephen Peterson, when did you start following the Pirates? Um, probably right around the time that this book picks up, uh, around 80, I think, was my first game. My dad took me um, to Three Rivers. Um, and it was right, you know, after they had won the World Series, that championship team with all those great players on it. With, and so I saw Stargell and I saw Parker um, and, you know, all these guys from, from that championship team when I was, I was probably about eight years old. Um, and I think I really fell in love with the experience of it, even more than the, the game, you know, and because um, I just loved the, the scoreboard and the, the, you know, watching that. So I remember it was actually a rain uh, delay and there was a lot of you know not actual uh, you know game going on and me and my two sisters who are a little older than me just love that and love you know just playing along with the games on the scoreboard but I just love the feel of you know the ballpark and the game and then you know so then as I got older you know I started you know getting you know getting into the game and, 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 and getting to know more about these guys um, and so so when that started the Pirates were, were were great, were terrific, you know, because they had just won the series, and that was also the time the Steelers had won their, you know, four Super Bowl championships. So I would just thought all Pittsburgh teams were amazing, you know, like and would be amazing every year, um, including the Pirates. And then so then things changed very quickly in '81 and '82, and then I 
wasn't sure what was going on exactly, but you know, um, I stuck with them. And, um, and then when I really started getting into baseball, ironically, is when they were really, really bad. You know, when they, this first kind of slide, uh, you know, around 84 and 85 and, and, and these guys, that's, you know, those teams, that's when I really started getting into it. Um, and then my real heroes from, from were the, the 90, 91, 92 teams, this great team that we, you know, it's kind of the focus of the book of with Bonds and Van Slyke and, and Benia. Those were, those are my favorite players, um, particularly Van Slyke. Um, I adored Van Slyke and um, so. Were you a fan continuously, or did your interest c uh, come I and go as they? I never wavered. Amazingly enough, um, and you know, like I, I, I was not born in Pittsburgh. I actually never lived in Pittsburgh. Um, I, you know, my time here was every summer when we could come and visit grandmas, and um, and and that's you know when I fell in love with the city. And also, this stuff was ingrained in me, you know, at birth when my dad was like, "These are your teams. You have no choice." You know what I mean? There were no other teams. It wasn't even like debatable. Like if I was like, "Hmm, what about?" the Cubs, because I was living in Illinois, um, I, I, I stuck with them, and I stuck with them, you know, and maybe, maybe it's because when I really started to get into them, they were already pretty bad, you know, and then so then I was like, oh, what a surprise, actually, when I became, you know, in 1990, I was like, wow, they're, they're good, weird, um, and, um, and then I stuck with them through the whole, the 20 year of losing seasons, I never, I don't know why. Could, you get, could you get their games on the radio when you lived away from Pittsburgh? Um, yeah, uh, I would get on the radio. You know, you'd you'd get them every once in a while. You know, you'd you know you'd get, you know, when I was in Illinois, you'd get the the Cubs games. So I get to see them play the Cubs. When I like I lived in Milwaukee for a while, and so I get to see the Brewer games and see them come to town when they were with the Brewers. And I just just followed them and stuck with them, and you know, so you know, I just would see them when I could, basically. Yeah. Peter, you the, the same as your son. You were with them all the way, or oh, I did if you cut my wrist, I'd bleed black and gold. <laughs> I mean, this is a, I'm just a diehard Pirates fan, uh, and and uh, very much I, I sort of preceded Stephen in watching terrible Pirate teams, and so you had to love baseball to be a Pittsburgh Pirates fan during that period of time. And uh, when I was an Otto kid in 1952, they lost 112 games, and the schedule was only 154 games. You really had to be a fan. We, we, we would go out to Forest Field and they would put all the knothole kids in right field and we'd be the only people at the ballpark. <laughs> the foul ball would go in the stands and we'd want to cry <laughs> because we went over and get it, but we couldn't because they had us blocked into that one section. Who were the players on that uh, team that lost so many games? Oh, well, Kiner was still with that, uh, with that team, but uh, oh my, uh, I mentioned Murray Dixon. He was with that, that team. It was the, the era of bonus babies and they had a bunch of kids uh, because in those days, if you signed someone for over $10,000, you had to keep them for two years on the major league level. Uh, one of them, oddly enough, uh, was uh, Vic Janowitz, who won the Heisman Trophy <laughs> at Ohio State University. Because R Ricky, uh, Branch Ricky was a general manager in those days for the Pirates. Uh, a good many people forget that. But uh, he had this wonderful idea when he was with the Cardinals of setting up this farm system, and they went on to win all sorts of pennants and World Series. He had this wonderful idea with the Dodgers of integrating baseball, and that, uh, that not only turned well in terms of of uh, uh, racial issues in baseball, but also the Dodgers became the dominant team in the 1950s. For some reason, <laughs> when Ricky came to Pittsburgh, he decided the best bet was the, the best athlete available. <laughs> it sounds like NFL draft. And so he would sign people like Vic 
Vic Janowitz, uh, who was not a very good baseball player. And I can remember one time, he had trouble catching pop fly balls behind home plate. And fans would yell out, signal for a fair catch, <laughs> as he circled, <laughs> circled under the ball. Uh, they had uh, another catcher named Nick Kobach, who batted seven times in two years <laughs> because he was, so, he was so young and so terrible that they had to keep him on the bench. Did you listen to the games on the radio a lot? Oh, absolutely. But in those days, that was the big thing. You could walk down streets in Pittsburgh, and you would go from block to block, and you would not miss a play. Who were the announcers? Because everybody would have the radios on. Well, the, the, the great announcer in Pittsburgh, um, the Hall of Fame announcer, of course, is Bob Prince. And uh, Prince was broadcasting games when I was growing up. But Prince sort of learned how to broadcast a game uh, through Rosie Rosewell, who is, it, it, it doesn't seem possible, but he was more colorful than Bob Prince. And Rosie Rosewell knew that a good many uh, um, housewives back in those days were listening to Pirate Baseball, and he would sort of gear his narrative to women uh, as well as a male, male audience. And he came up with all sorts of gimmicks. Um, uh, they, the announcers didn't, the broadcasters didn't travel in those days. They were in the studio, and they were getting the games over ticker tape. And so he had time to set up an elaborate thing when Kiner would hit a home run. And instead of saying Ralph Kiner, you know, the, the, uh, it's a home run, he would say, get upstairs and raise the window, Aunt Minnie, here she comes. And Bob Prince would be in the background, and he would stomp her feet. And uh, all of a sudden, you hear this crash. And then Rosie Rowe would say, she never made it. She never <laughs> made it. <laughs> so uh, how did you two decide to get together and write a book, and why pick a book about a lousy baseball game? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually my idea yes. um, to write something together. Um, and he had been doing, you know, we were both writers. I was a different kind of writer. I was, you know, working in L.A. and screenwriting and, you know, I had been doing that for a while. And uh, my dad had been doing, you know, authoring these, you know, Pirates and Pittsburgh sports books for a while. And um, he, we were talking about what he was going to do next. And I think my mother <laughs> was kind of <laughs> unhappy <laughs> with the idea of him doing another one. So then I brought up just one day, I said, well, what if we wrote one together? And, yeah. and then um, and then my mom was like, oh, God, no. Um, and then, because <laughs> now she knew she couldn't say no. Um, and then, so it was like, well, what, we, what should we write about? Mm -hmm. um, and it was, of course, the Pirates, because that's, you know, I think our greatest love of the mm -hmm. Pittsburgh sports teams. And, you know, he's, he's a baseball writer before um, everything. And um, so we tossed around some ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and then I mentioned this team uh, from the, the 90, 91, 92 playoff team and, and how I thought that this, you know, they don't get a lot of credit. You know, and you, and you read a lot of books about championship teams and great teams. And I, I just always thought that this was one of the great teams that never was because they should have, you know, not, they should have won multiple World, World Series. They should have been a dynasty with the talent on this team and how good they were. Um, and it was sad because, you know, of, you know, multiple reasons, mainly themselves, that this, that never accomplished this feat, never actually even got to a World Series, um, that they just kept, you know, getting to that point three years in a row and just kept, you know, losing. And I just thought, what an interesting story about why, you know, how all this talent and all this, you know, and they, and they got there and they got to that point and, 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 and how did this happen, um, this, this, you know, and, and to reach to this point and then to get to this, you know, there's this dramatic moment in, in the 92 NLCS 
um, you know, this slide, which is the initial slide, mm -hmm. um, and building to that, and then, and then how the story of how this really just, this moment just set off this, you know, at the time you had no idea that this was, you know, it was bad, <laughs> but, you know, it was really bad what was coming for the 20, and this mm -hmm. was kind of the impetus yeah. for this, this, you know, this, this other slide. Um, so we just started talking about that idea and, um, and, and what a great story that was and how, you know, it's not a story a lot of people know, you know, and, the, and these great characters, you know, and Van Syke and Bonds and Leland um, and, and these guys and how interesting it would be to tell this story. And then it kind of evolved into mm -hmm. more, you know, than, than just that mm -hmm. first slide and the, and the second slide and then um, and how the, the city um, itself was in, in a lot of was kind of in its own slide in the early you know mm -hmm. 80s before this mm -hmm. even happened so it really became about these three slides um, mm -hmm. and um, and then we said yeah that's good idea that's a great idea <laughs> and so then and then that's how it happened and then we had to figure out well we lived on live on completely you know opposite sides of the country how are we gonna do this and mm -hmm. um, and we did it and mm -hmm. we just kind of Send stuff back and forth to each other, and um, mm -hmm. and you know he'd I'd read his chapter, make he'd read my chapter, mm -hmm. and we'd go make some, back make some trips to Pittsburgh for yeah, research. Yeah, yeah, did some mm -hmm. did some research. Um, uh, we, we scheduled a trip three years ago mm -hmm. when we were here, and mm -hmm. um, they led us into the archives of PNC, and we were able to you know do some research and get some Photo. the great photos that you you know in the, the middle of the book, you know, all came from from the archives of PNC, and um, mm -hmm. that's how it happened. So the slide does, doesn't refer to the team going from being good to being bad, but, but what are the other slides that uh, Stephen well, was talking about? Well, when we came up with the idea, uh, we approached University of Pittsburgh Press, and they said it was a great idea, but they wanted that slide within the context of Pittsburgh's civic history. And so we went back to the 1979 World Series. You know, so Pittsburgh was on top of the baseball world. It was a World Series of Pop Stargell. Uh, they were going to win the World Series the following year, first time in team history, two consecutive World Series. They were going to have over two million fans come out to Three Rivers Stadium, uh, but then it started to fall apart. And so by 1985, uh, the team was in complete disarray. Uh, so just five years after being on the top of the baseball world, uh, the team was so bad that the Galbraiths, who had owned the team for a long time, uh, decided they wanted out, and they wanted to sell the, sell the team. And there was nobody who stepped forward in Pittsburgh to buy the team, and it looked like the team was gone in 1985. And what made matters even worse is on top of bad baseball and uh, uh, the animosity of the fans, you had the Pittsburgh cocaine trials in 1985, where you had current and former Pirates, in including Dave Parker, uh, uh, going in front of a, of a uh, a, a jury and talking about the use of drugs during that period. Drugs were a problem all the way through Major League Baseball, but because those trials occurred in Pittsburgh, sudden, suddenly it seemed to be a Pittsburgh problem. So it was a perfect storm in 1985, and you come to the first hero in the book, uh, Mayor Richard Caligari, uh, who brought together a group of businessmen, and he said, we can't let this happen. We can't let the Pirates leave Pittsburgh. He's a Pittsburgh kid. Uh, he grew up uh, uh, going around the, uh, the milk routes with his father. Uh, he had worked at, uh, in parks and recreation in Pittsburgh and uh, became mayor of, the mayor of the city. So he brought in all of these uh, CEOs and heads of banks and, uh, and he said, we, we, we have to put together a group so that we can buy the pirates. And he was so <laughs> aggressive. My favorite Caligari story is that uh, 
the mayor of Indianapolis, I think his name was uh, Hudnut, uh, he uh, was going to send an emissary to Pittsburgh to take a look at the situation to m see about moving the team to Indianapolis. And Richard Caligari said, if that emissary arrives at the Pittsburgh airport, gets in a rental car, as soon as he crosses the Pittsburgh city limits, he'll be arrested. <laughs> of course, he was bluffing, <laughs> but that's how dead serious he was that, that they had to do something about this team. And of course, it scared the heck out of Hudnut because he had just stolen the Baltimore Colts <laughs> from Baltimore. <laughs> and so he just, he just backed off. So they did it. They, they pulled it off. It, and, and they became an ownership group called the Pittsburgh Associates. And um, at that point, Pittsburgh sports writers were very skeptical about the whole situation because none of them had baseball experience. Um, they were waiting to see who they'd hire as general manager. They hired somebody nobody had ever heard of, and he'd spent the last several years <laughs> in real estate. And they said, here we go. <laughs> this team is being run by amateurs. Uh, they overlooked the fact that this, this, uh, that, uh, this was Sid Thrift, who had extensive experience before he went into real estate with, uh, with, with the development of young ballplayers. And then after Sid Brif Thrift was selected, he had to pick a manager. And they said, okay, there's great managers out there. And they said, why not bring back Willie Stargell, make baseball history, first African-American manager. Sid Thrift selected a guy whose first name was Jim. And the outcry in Pittsburgh papers was Jim who? Nobody had ever heard of Jim Leland. So there it was. You had Sid Thrift, who had become the architect, Jim Leland, who would lead these teams to championship seasons. And uh, there was a player who had been drafted. Uh, he was surly difficult to get along with. Most major league teams stayed away from him, but the Pirates were so desperate they took him with their number one draft pick, and he was waiting for his chance. He, he had his father, who had uh, more or less trained him to be a Hall of Fame player, and Sid Thrift took one look at him on a trip, and he brought Barry Bonds back with him. So, Did the ownership group have the money that they needed to put a team together to compete? They put together a meager package. The Galbraiths were not very happy, but they said this is the, uh, this is Bill Beck, who had <laughs> who probably owned more baseball teams than anybody in the history of baseball, said the only time an owner makes money is when he sells the team. Uh, the Galbraiths, uh, it wasn't much of an offer. Uh, it, they managed to break even because the, the team had, uh, had accumulated so much, uh, so much depth. Uh, but they were just glad to get out because the situation was so uh, so so bad. There was a <laughs> there was a game where uh, they asked Pittsburgh fans to so show their support to keep the team in Pittsburgh, and they did. Thirty five, forty thousand came out to Three Rivers. The Pirates were terrible. <laughs> they lost to the Cubs something like eight to two, and the fans were cheering for the Cubs <laughs> and booing the Pirates. <laughs> and the Pirate players said, "Get us out of here! <laughs> Put us in a different city. We can't take this anymore." You always hear about uh, Pittsburgh being a small market team. So could they could they compete? How did they do that? Better than now, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it, and, and not not as much, you know, as you know, in terms of them having much more money back then it was just that you didn't have the competition the ridiculous competition now you know that I mean you know Yankees and Red Sox and, and those teams were still spending more money back then but they weren't it wasn't like now you know what you have to compete with you know with these major market teams mm -hmm. you have one part where you talked about Bar uh, Barry Bonds wanted to um, uh, get his contract extended he wanted three million dollars <laughs> right. which kind of yeah, sounds right. quaint yeah yeah, yeah. It, it just it just absolutely amazing i think uh, think back uh, back then uh the pirates were very fortunate uh because they had barry Boney, uh, barry bonds 
uh, who was ready for, for, the, for the major leagues. So it took them a few years. Uh, they had Bobby Bonilla. They lost him and they reclaimed him. Uh, they made some trades, so they got through some disgruntled veterans and brought in a, a good many young pitchers. Sid Bream, excuse me, Sid Thrift, uh, on April Fool's Day, <laughs> traded the only decent player the Pirates seemed to have back in those days. And Stephen will remember Tony Pena, mm -hmm. the catcher. Uh, he traded Pena to the St. Louis Cardinals for uh, a couple players that no one had ever heard of. One was Andy Van Slyke. <laughs> <laughs> the other was Mike Lavalier, and there was a rookie pitcher, a pitcher who became the rookie of the year, Mike, Mike Dunn. Uh, the Pittsburgh Papers declared that the trade, because it was made on April Fool's Day, proved <laughs> the Pirates had fools <laughs> running, the, running the team. And, of course, we all know how that trade turned out. But it's a little like they do now, where mm -hmm. they just kind yeah. of, you know, a lot sure. of it's homegrown. Mm -hmm. um, and then they just get lucky. You know, they find some mm -hmm. bargains mm -hmm. or, the, you know, they mm -hmm. get, you know, some guy like Bob Walk who... Um, you know, back then, who you know, who seemed to be washed up or just mm -hmm, kind of done, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, he finds a new home and kind of has a rebirth, and it's kind of the way the team is mm -hmm. now too. Mm -hmm. You know, so. well, tell me about Sid Thrift. How did he operate? He was uh, very aggressive, and uh, he pretty much ran the show, and uh, and that led to a serious problem. Uh, because everyone, you talk about Barry Bonds' arrogance. Well, Sid Thrift was certainly Barry Bonds' rival for sheer, sheer arrogance. Uh, he was the one who took responsibility for the improvement and for the Pirates winning ways, and he just kept getting on the nerves more and more of, pitch of the uh, Pirates' management to the point that it reached a crisis, and uh, they eventually they, they fired him. Uh, and one of the things that disturbed him was that he kept taking credit, and he would give no credit to Jim Leland. Uh, during that period of time where Leland would take these pieces and he would put them together in this, into this great team. So Thrift w Thrift Sid Thrift was gone before the 1990 season when they finally started winning uh, divisions. How was he treated by the media? Uh, at first, again, it was like, why are they hiring somebody with experience in real estate? And they mocked him in, the, uh, uh, in, in, their, in their articles. They, I remember one sports writer said that uh, uh, if you can pull off, uh, off, if you can pull this off, um, there will be a city that will celebrate you for the miracle. He said, "It won't be Pittsburgh; it'll be Lourdes." It's <laughs> 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 that, that desperate of a situation. But again, they forgot that he had had extensive experience, especially with the Paris and, and player development. He could recognize talent, and he got the right players. But uh, but it bothered people more and more that Leland was not getting the credit because he was the one who had to put everything together. One of the m controversial moves involved Van Slyke. Uh, when he got Van Slyke, uh, because Barry Bonds was a center fielder, but he had a weak arm. Van Slyke was a better center fielder because he had a strong arm, and, he had to m and it was Leland who moved Bonds to left field, which became part of this rivalry between Van Slyke and, and Bonds. Uh, they, they did not get along at all. Uh, was Jim Leland the manager when you started following the team? Um, no. Well, I mean, right. that's right when the, the, the change them. So probably like when I really started, you know, following them and getting into them, that, that's probably what, right around when Leland took over. Um, but they weren't, you know, they hadn't come out of their, you know, their slump. The, the pieces, right, right when the pieces were coming into place for that team in the early 90s, you know, that's that's when I started, you know, um, really following them. So, so what yeah. Do you, what do you um, remember about Jim Leland? Um, I, my main <laughs> <laughs> memory of him watching it was him smoking in the dugout. <laughs> um, because like even you know it was a different time it was the 80s but you know 
it still struck me as odd that <laughs> this, this, you know, the game was going on. This guy was having a smoke while, you know, <laughs> and you know, to calm his nerves. I guess that was his way of dealing things. But I, I, I remember him, um, and uh, sitting in the, in the dugout and smoking and um, and just him just being very good and with player being great with the players. I think was the the way you know I that. I recognized back then, you know, you, as you could see it coming together, and 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 also, um, not just you know his support of the players and his team, and he always was, you know, that he was always very defensive of his his team, and and, and but um, not putting up with crap from one person in particular, uh, with, with with bonds, you know, he really, you know, he he didn't baby bonds, and he didn't, um, you know, try not to let him get away with you know, some of his attitude and his, you know, arrogance and I would try to put him in his place as much as possible, you know. How'd that um, work out? Um, <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about that incident? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, well, they got into an altercation. And one thing, another thing I remember about Leland is he definitely was not afraid to, you know, like when I said, he, you know, he stuck out for players as I, you know, to argue calls and to get in the faces of umpires, you know, like, which is what some of the, you know, later managers had, you know, didn't do. Um, but uh, there was an incident in, in spring training um, in 92, right? 91. 91, 91. Um, where, uh, where Bonds was talking to the media, um, and uh, or, or they tried to, to, to talk to him, the, the media, and he said, I won't, won't talk to you and um, wouldn't talk to, he only would only, his, they were trying to take pictures of him, mm -hmm. right? and then he would only talk to, uh, he would only let, allow his personal photographer to film him at this point, you know, and, and it was 91, so he wasn't even, you know, <laughs> they, had, they hadn't won anything really yet, you know, to have that, and so Leland tore, you know, saw it, walked over, tore into him in the middle of everybody um, at spring training and, you know, let the F words fly and with, um, with cameras thing, rolling, with cameras <laughs> rolling, um, so that was, that was Leland, you know, the right off, you know, the bat, that was, that was him, you know, just the, the, in the, the, the intensity and the fire in him, and especially if, you know, if he saw something getting out of hand, you know, e either way, it was just his, his, his way of dealing with, with players, you know, that, that made him great, you know. How was he with the fans, or did the fans like the fan the Bonds? The, the initial reaction was negative because I really think the fans wanted Starzl. Uh, though people like Joe Torre were also available at that time. Oh, as manager. As yeah. manager. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when he was hired as manager, again, it was who Jim Who. They gave him a one-year contract uh, for the next few years, one-year contracts, one-year contracts, and uh, finally he, <laughs> one of my favorite Jim Leland lines, he, he, he bought a home, and he said, contrary to belief, it's not on wheels, <laughs> because everybody thought that he wasn't going to last very, uh, very long. But he was, he was just the perfect manager for this city, uh, because he was, as, as Stephen explained, he was just a no-nonsense guy, uh, great for a working-class town. Uh, he was great with players, uh, but he had his limits. Uh, and the famous confrontation with Barry Bonds, which everybody can watch on <laughs> YouTube, but keep the kids out of the room uh, when you when you watch it. Uh, but he was just that kind of kind of manager, and he became. Uh, it's hard to say he became the most beloved manager in Pittsburgh, but pretty darn close because you you, you, uh, you have Danny Murtall back there, and it's interesting when Leland was hired, he said, "I'm no Danny Murtall," and. That he says, I'm not easy going. Uh, I'm not going to sit in a rocking chair. I'm going to pace in the dugout. <laughs> and <laughs> he did. How were the fans with Barry Bonds? 
Mm. Love hate, I think. Where there was, I mean, and I think that, you know, me personally, you know, that's that's the way it was. You know, because I was a fan, and then I adored Bonds for I, I still remember my Bond shirt, uh, my jersey that I had in in '91. Um, and then there were times where you know, kind of like that Leland incident, where you just want to throw him out the window, where you're like, "What are you doing?" You know, um, um, where you could tell, you know, it wasn't about the team; it was about him. You know, it was those moments where he would drive you crazy. And I think, I think a lot of fans just had that same reaction, where they, you know, kind of like you said, where they wanted to love him, they wanted him to be the face of the team and the face of the Pirates, and um, because he was so talented, and and um, you know, he could have. He should have taken this team to multiple World Series, um, but he just had that thing about him. He had that arrogance, and he had that you know selfishness, and you know that just got in the way of things. Um, so it would it would just drive you crazy and and, and grow to hate him. And I think I think now um, I think most of the the love is gone <laughs> for <laughs> most. I want to read something in your book. You say the only difference between Bonds and Bonilla in the commonly <laughs> held view by those in the media who had to deal with them was that if you called Bonds <laughs> in the middle of a cold, wintry night and told him you were stranded with a flat tire, he would tell you to go to hell. <laughs> if you called Bonilla, he would tell you he'd be right there and never show up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the interesting thing about this story is that uh, we interviewed uh, every broadcaster uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and they had different stories to tell, wonderful stories to tell, but this is the one that's kept popping up, and they uh, each sort of claim credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to one, and it'd say, let me tell you this story, <laughs> and then, then you talk to another one, and it'd be the same story about Bonds, but it really captures uh, the, the view held of those two, those two ballplayers, who are very good friends, by the way. Benito is one of the few supporters of Bonds on the, on the team. Uh, that Bonds was just, he had that arrogance and that selfishness, that sense of entitlement. And he didn't disguise it. And, <laughs> but and Benilla, he just, Benilla Benilla never, could hide he it never, never hid it. Yeah. Where Benilla would hide it. Yeah. And Benilla would come off as this, well, I grew up in the Bronx, and every day is a good day for some sort of kid who grew up in the Bronx, Bronx when he's playing Major League Baseball. But uh, a, a good many people, broadcasters, sports writers, sort of saw behind that and saw a different Benilla who was never really content with playing the Pirates and sooner or later was going to reach free agency and, and uh, where Bonds would head to San Francisco where Willie Mays uh, had played and his father had played, that Bobby Benilla was headed back to New York with, uh, with the Mets and of course that's what brought things, that's why 91 and 92 become such, such terrible tragic moments because you knew that as soon as these, uh, as soon as Bonds, Benilla, even Drabeck became free agents, they, they were gone. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Andy Van Slyke and Bonds didn't get along. Were there other players on the Pirates who, who Barry Bonds clashed with? Everybody. Everybody? <laughs> <Just about. laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. We, we interviewed a number of players, and uh, they were very careful, very cautious. Mm -hmm. uh, they pretty much would say, well, Barry made us a lot of money. Uh, so they really were reluctant to say negative things about him. That wasn't the case with sports writers. It wasn't the case with broadcasters. And, of course, there's Jeff Perlman, who wrote the book about Barry Bonds called Love Me, Love Me, Hate Me. Uh, uh, Jeff Perlman, uh, when he talked about <laughs> Barry Bonds, never used his name. He had this expletive that he kept using over and over and over again because Bonds was so hostile and made life so difficult for him when he was writing that book. Did he ever, Barry Bonds ever talk to reporters? Um, do, do, uh, 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 think of, uh, Paul Myers. He did talk to Paul Myers um, mm -hmm. and who had Actually, was one of the kindest. You know, when, when we started this mm -hmm. this whole thing, and you know, we knew that Bonds was the the 
character that is going to get the most attention and and um, and be the most interest in this story. You know, we said, well, you know, he's been painted so, you know, poorly by the media, and and, and, and you know, we said, <laughs> let, let you know, let's let's put a let's try to put a positive spin on it. Let's really, you know, show bonds, you know, that, that, that nobody saw. And then we kind of realized that maybe, maybe that just didn't exist. So we were like, man, this is tough. Um, and then uh, but Paul Meyer was one of the people who did, who did. you know, have uh, nice things, mm -hmm. nice, you know, not just not awful <laughs> things to say about him, um, that had a fairly, you know, yeah. Good working relationship yeah. with him. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was the beat writer yeah. uh, at, at that time uh, for the uh, cover the Pirates for the the, uh, the Post Gazette, and uh, uh, he just um, he would have fun with Barry Bonds. Uh, he said they they used to have this duel with their middle fingers uh, when <laughs> he'd come into the into the clubhouse, and he just seemed to know how to handle handle Bonds uh, in that situation. And they both lived uh, out in the Coriopolis Moon area, so. Maybe that was a was a part of it, but uh, uh, if if you sort of categorize them, um, Paul Meyer seemed to know how to handle bonds. Uh, Gene Collier uh, really had nothing good to say about uh, about Barry Bonds at, at all. But Gene Collier really admired Benia as a ball player, uh, and uh, Bob Smizek uh, had very little to s good to say about Barry Bonds as a human being, but he kept drawing attention to Bonds' talent and he kept reminding Pittsburgh fans. This is one of the greatest players, perhaps the greatest player ever to wear a Pirates uniform, and you should come out and see him because he's not going to be here much long. And he actually wrote on, on more than one occasion that, that Bonds was greater in a Pirates uniform than Clemente. Did the fans ever warm up to him? <laughs> it was just hard to do. I, I, I think yeah. that's what it was. Like, even if you wanted to, I mean, you just had to look past so much and, you know, to, to embrace. He just wasn't this lovable guy and it just never you know um steve blass said the other day that um he just he w it was not just that he was you know he had this arrogance it was just unpredictable too and you didn't know who you were getting sometimes and you know that he would be he would soften up you know s every once in a while and he would see he would be into it and he'd be into the you know the, the you know the whole thing and with the team and then you know the next day he'd be this guy he'd be this bonds you know who who just you couldn't talk to, you couldn't deal with, who you know didn't care about you or anybody else on the team or the, or the reporters, you know. So. Did you try to talk to him for this book? We did. Right. Yeah. Well, in, in in the case of Bonds, it's just you know you, you send out word and it evaporates. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I mean, we we tried, but it, it you know I don't think it was happening. Now your book starts off talking about the 1989 World Series, and it has a point where the, they're in the National League Championship Series three years in a row and lose all three, but there was a big trough in between, and that's before the slide starts. Mm -hmm. So what caused the big trough in between and, and, and then the big drop-off after, after the championship well, games? Well, they won the World Series in 1979. I, I think there was such a good spirit about that championship that people just thought it would go on forever. You know, you had, we are, it was the We Are Family team, and uh, you had Willie Stargell, who should have been retired at that point, who had this remarkable season, uh, tied for the, uh, uh, the uh, MVP in the National League, was the hero of the playoffs, uh, was the most valuable player in the World Series, hit, a, hit that home run in the seventh game of the World Series that, uh, that won everything. And it was just that, that sense of, 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 of it, it was back, that 1960 feeling was back. 
1971 season was back. It was Mazarowski in 60, it was Clemente in 71, now Stargell in 79. And there's n no reason to think that it couldn't go on forever. As Stephen mentioned, uh, Sports Illustrated, for example, named co-winners of Sportsman of the Year, Terry Bradshaw and Willie Stargell, and they were on the cover of the magazine. So it just looked great. Uh, but then what people didn't realize that there were old players on that team, including Willie Stargell. He wasn't that far away from retirement. And they suffered a number of injuries, and it just didn't work out. And it just snowballed. It just kept going downhill and kept going downhill until finally. Um, what was rock bottom? Rock bottom, again, was that 1985 season where they lost 105 games at the same time that they had the Pittsburgh cocaine trials going on in the, in the city. Uh, you had this beloved manager, another beloved manager, with uh, Chuck Tanner uh, in 1979. His mother died. Uh, during the World Series. They were down three games to one in that World Series against the Orioles, and Tanner said he, he was going to stick with the team. And he said, my mother died to get up to heaven to help you out, uh, to help you win the World Series, which they, which they did. He grew up in Newcastle. He was fr a fairly lo local, uh, local boy. And um, they fired Tanner in 1985. His coaches were Willie Stargell <laughs> and Grant Jackson. All of them had, uh, Bob Skinner, all of them had played on championships teams. So it was just, uh, 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 it, again, I, I the only way to describe it is a perfect storm. If it could go wrong, it was Murphy's Law in 1935. If it could go wrong, it would go wrong, and it did for the Pirates. Now, uh, we mentioned that the book is called The Slide, and you brought along a, a bobblehead <laughs> thing of one of the slides that the book talks about. Can you, can you talk about what, what's in this, what the slide was all about? Uh, well, this is the, the literal slide um, from Game 7 of the 92 National League Championship Series. Um, and this is the moment um, when um, Sid Bream came chugging around third with his leg brace on, and um, the, the Pirates were winning. We're up by two runs in the ninth inning, and then um, and then and then this happened. Um, and Bream comes chugging around, and and you're just watching in disbelief. And this is you know the, I can't believe this is happening. It looked like we were finally this is it. We're going we're going to the World Series. Here it comes, and then they they tie it, and then here comes the winning run as as Bream's limping around, and he slides into home, and Lavalier puts the tag on, and he somehow he's safe. And it was just, this was the moment, and the, and the, the bizarre thing is, um, you know, this, there's now a bobblehead of one of the worst moments of my entire life, um, <laughs> which is bizarre. Um, but this, you know, this was a celebration bobblehead in Atlanta. In Atlanta, this is one of, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in baseball. Um, and, um, and, and, and from the other side, you know, not just Atlanta fans, but, you know, everybody looks at this as this is one of the greatest games in the history of baseball played and it's just this awful moment you know it's for for us and for pirates fans this was the moment um, as soon as this happened it's just like getting your heart ripped out you know at that moment because you know it, it's over it's like oh my god wait wait what what we were going to world series was he really safe i think he was uh, you 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 mike lavalier claims yeah. he was out you know we talked to mike lavalier yeah. And he claims that uh, that uh, when a, when a player slides, he will uh, raise the spike so it doesn't get caught. And he claims that Bream's foot went over home plate. Eventually, Bream did go over home plate, but by then, Lavalier had applied the tag. So Mike Lavalier, to this day, will tell you Sid Bream was out. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So then, um, so now we have it for and. Um,
and then Lavalier destroyed it, right? Right. Well, <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, the Braves wanted to, to do this for the 20th anniversary of the slide. Uh, this year is the 25th anniversary of the slide. So five years ago, they wanted to do the bobblehead. They couldn't do it without Mike Lavalier's permission. And you can imagine uh, how <laughs> difficult that was going to be. But Sid Bream, who knew Mike Lavalier quite well, uh, contacted Mike Lavalier, and Mike Lavalier said, "Okay, you know, do it." Uh, Sid Bream then sent Mike Lavalier one of the bobbleheads as a thank you. Uh, if people see the bobblehead, and there is a photo of it in the book, you can see why Mike Lavalier would not be happy beyond the fact that here is this play again. Uh, he's smiling <laughs> as <laughs> so Bream scores this, <laughs> scores exactly. the uh, the winning run. So 20 years later, he has this bobblehead, <laughs> and the Pirates have lost every season for 20 years. And he's down at spring training, and he's helping out with the Pirates, and he walks to home plate, and he's carrying the bobblehead. And he puts it on home plate, and he has something over his shoulder, which at first seems to be a bat, but turns out to be a sledgehammer. So he puts, the, he puts the bobblehead on home plate, he takes the sledgehammer, and he smashes it. So Mike LaVallier will tell you two things. One, Sid Bream was out. Two, that he ended the curse, the strings, <laughs> because they went on to have a winning season after he, sh after he smashed the bobblehead. So they started having their losing, 20 years of losing from that moment to that yeah. slide Next year. on? Yeah. Sure. What caused it? Uh, well, that was when uh, Barry Bonds left. Did Bonnie, Bobby Bonilla leave? Was the already, same gone. already gone. Yeah. Already gone. You, can, you, you see the loss of key players with each season. At the end of the 1990 season, they lose Sid Bream to free agency. Sid Bream did not want to leave Pittsburgh. He thought he was going to get a nice contract from the Pirates. Never happened. They lowballed him. Uh, he and his wife cried the night before they signed with the Atlanta Braves. It was heartbreaking. Leland was upset. So Bream was playing for the Braves in 1991 when the Braves beat the Pirates in the playoffs. And of course, he scored the winning run in 1992. In 91, they lost Benia again for the same reason. Benia wanted to sign for five years. The Pirates offered four, and he said, I'm not going to do it. And he left at the end of the 1991 season. Uh, and so you had the loss of Bream, you had the loss of Benia, and then likely Bonds and Drabeck were going to be gone after 1992. So, so you this, you knew was this was this it. Was you know, that's it. why it was it. It was so devastating. Did the owners just not have the money to pay those kinds of salaries, or was it kind of a philosophy that tight-fisted? Sure. Now, Pirate fans may see a parallel with the nutting, nutting ownership uh, these uh, these days, uh, but uh, the Pirates could have signed uh, Bob Bernia by offering an extra extra, extra year. They could have signed Barry Bonds. When Barry Bonds heard about the money being offered Bernia, he said, "Offer it to me. I'll sign. I'll sign him off to your contract." Uh, but uh, the, the there was a money issue going back to arbitration with Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla, and they kept losing in arbitration. Well it Bob became Barry bitter, Bobby more and more bitter. Barry Bonds lost in arbitration three years, had a three years in a row. Mm -hmm. While well, Annie Van Slyke was finding, signing very lucrative multi-year contracts, which was rankled Bonds even more. Was race an issue in this with the fans, with the owners, with the players? Um, yeah. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, this, is, this is greatly ironic because in 1971, when the Pirates won the World Series, they made baseball history. They filled the first all-black lineup in baseball history. In 1985, we go back to that horrible, horrible year. In 1985, uh, Nightingale, who was the uh, major writer for Sporting News, wrote an article in which he could declare baseball dead in Pittsburgh. Uh, he said, the, uh, we Are Family is a funeral dirge, and Three Rivers is a funeral parlor. And he, uh, in that article, 
he said that one of the problems, one of the reasons that Pirates fans are not coming out of the ballpark is that there are too many blacks on the team. And he, he developed, uh, developed that, uh, that theme within that article. So you have the irony of this team feeling the first all-black lineup in 1971. and 1985, people are saying the team is too black for Pittsburgh. So I mean, so was that a factor? I don't know. No, no one directly said that, but I think that was kind of an unspoken thing, especially with Bonds and Bonilla and what the fans wanted to see and who was of those three who was the most important to keep happy um, was you know Van Slyke. So you know, no one said that. You know, was that taken? You know, by a lot of people, was that the perception? I I think so. Um, so and then and that led to a lot of. Bonilla and Bonds, you know, I, I think they, and I don't think they were subtle about it, that that was what was going on, at least in their eyes, um, so. But when did the McClatchy group come along to buy the team? Th this is another un sort of unsung hero uh, in, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh history. Uh, by 1995, uh, the Pirates were in disarray again. Uh, they, uh, 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 they, they, they were in the midst of a tailspin. Uh, they were losing uh, and getting worse and worse, uh, made a lot of bad decisions. And uh, the Pittsburgh Associates, it just wasn't working out. The franchise was bleeding money. It was just going deeper and deeper into debt. And so uh, they had to find an, an ownership. And this is where Mary Murphy comes into, comes into play. Uh, he r extracted a promise that, that, uh, that the Pirates would give him time to find an owner to keep the team in Pittsburgh. So that's one good thing that he did. Uh, but he had developed this deal with, uh, uh, I believe the gentleman's name was Regis, uh, and he was a cable czar uh, in eastern Pennsylvania. The owner of Adelphia Cable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, Murphy thought the deal was locked up with, with Regis. He actually made a public announcement before the beginning of the 19, this was 1994, before the 1994 season. Uh, Major League Baseball said, wait a minute. We want to see the details of this deal, and it turned out there wasn't enough money flowing back and forth in the deal, and they asked Regis to put up more cash. He wouldn't do it, so Murphy had pretty much bet everything on Regis, and suddenly he, there he was. He had no owner uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and time was running out. Uh, but he had this young, charming uh, newspaper magnate from Sacramento named Kevin McClatchy. McClatchy <laughs> had read in USA Today that the Pirates were for sale. <laughs> so he came to Pittsburgh. Um, everybody thought he was a lightweight, didn't know much about baseball, didn't know much about uh, finances. Um, Murphy didn't really care for him, uh, but that was all Murphy had at that point. And so McClatchy, to his credit, kept coming to Pittsburgh kept trying to convince people that he could do this under great suspicion that he wanted to buy the team to take it back to Sacramento. But he wasn't a Pittsburgh guy. Uh, he just wanted to get his fingers on his team and take it out of Pittsburgh. Why did he keep the team in Pittsburgh? He fell in love with the city. Uh, and he, f he fell in love with the fans. And he, he wanted to do this. Uh, that's what he kept telling them. He says, look at all the time I'm spending in Pittsburgh. Look at all the events I'm attending. Look at the money I'm putting in. And he ran around and he went to people like Frank Fuhrer and others, and they became, I think we're called managing partners. And then there were other, uh, he convinced some of the Pittsburgh associates to stay in, and he did it on Valentine's Day, going into the 1995 season. He did it. And uh, the, immediate uh, the, the immediate reaction, no honeymoon at all. 
they said, we're in the hands of an amateur again. Uh, there was, I think his name was Keaton, writing for the Post-Gazette, said he has so little business sense that you could take a thimble and put all his business sense in that thimble and still have room for your thumb. I mean, that's what McClatchy faced, and he did it. And he did something quite remarkable because in order to buy the Pirates, Major League Baseball said five years. If you don't have a new ballpark in five years, you're finished. And he did it. So if you want to put into a simple formula for Pirate fans, no Kevin McClatchy, no PNC Park. No PNC Park, no Pittsburgh Pirates. Did the Pirates ever get better under McClatchy? Um, no, not really. No, I mean, <laughs> it's 20 <laughs> years losing season, so no, I mean, <laughs> not really. Was he, was he hands-on? I mean, did he get involved in player decisions, or did he just hire a GM and then step away? He, he, he was hands-on, and that's, he lost some of his managing partners because he was hands-on. Uh, but uh, he just made a number of bad decisions. There were times when it looked like it was going to get turned around, where they would come fairly close. Uh, they went through a number of managers, a number of players. Uh, the, the, the players of promise, like, uh, like Jason Kendall yeah. and Jason Bay, uh, but it never quite clicked into, into place. Uh, uh, but he was just a wonderful guy, and uh, he was the one. Stargell uh, was completely alienated from Pittsburgh after what happened. Uh, they, when he was uh, third base coach, uh, Chuck Tanner, when he was fired, took the managerial job at, with the Atlanta Braves. He took Stargell with him. And Stargell, when Stargell came to Pittsburgh and he was a coach, they booed him. And, uh, and, uh, and Tanner said, how can you do that after what he did for this city? And that was it for Stargell. He would have very nothing to do with Pittsburgh. It was McClatchy. People, uh, people said, what can I do to, to bring this team back? Uh, to, to put in the good graces of Pittsburgh fans. And they said, talk to Willie Stargell. And he brought Willie Stargell back. He, took him, he brought him back, put him in the organization, and he was the one responsible for organizing the committee that, uh, that led to the erection of that statue that's outside PNC Park. S uh, Stargell died days, uh, just a d I think the day before uh, the opening of C PNC Park. And Kevin McClatchy wore a Stargell jersey and threw out the first pitch at PNC Park in honor of Stargell. I, I, I really, I have the greatest admiration uh, for Kevin McClatchy. I think there are Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh uh, people in Pittsburgh who don't, but I, I think he is really one of, the, one of the most important figures in Pirate history. He ended up getting forced out, though. Oh, yes. Wh why? Uh, the the Nunnings, uh, 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 the, uh, the father, uh, owned some shares, and he kept buying up shares. Uh, and eventually, he ended up more with more shares than Kevin McClatchy. And so he moved his son into management of the team. And so McClatchy lost a good deal of his power and authority because Nunning now controlled majority interests in the team. And he put his son, who is now the current owner, uh, into a position where uh, uh, we're pretty much undermined whatever authority Kevin McClatchy had. And that was the end of McClatchy. He resigned. During those 20 years of losing seasons every year you stayed a fan i did and um, and how many people did that in a, a city where the steelers are kind of everything um i think people you know a lot of people did but i know a lot of people defected i know people who are red sox fans today and i'm like you know from pittsburgh and i'm like why and they're like well because of the slide you know because they went on that that dive and then you know um 
it was it was hard. Why do you stay? I think you just it's just loyalty, and it's just I, I think it could have been fifty losing seasons, and I wouldn't have stopped because it, it did, when it turns around, you know, when it finally ended in twenty thirteen, um, the losing, it just makes it all that, you know, more sweet when it happens, and and and, and if you if you jump ship, and then, you know, it just it's never gonna feel like it does if you stayed with that team and they're you know they're gonna turn it around you know I mean so there was there was also a time in 2011 it almost ended it almost ended the 11 was season. that another slide and, that tw and 12 um yeah and 12 yeah they kept <laughs> getting close they, they, they had to do it they had to end this the slide in the most painful way possible too because they wouldn't have been them if they had just easily been like had a winning season once hurdle took over and uh, but they, yeah, they, they came close and in, in, in 11, they, it was kind of this um, freakish thing where they it didn't even seem to have all the pieces of it. Um, but then they started, they started winning and they were in first place in, in late July, um, I think early August, they were still in first. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it is there a couple teams below them. Uh, the Brewers weren't really, hadn't really hit their stride. And so it was a little bit of a mirage, the first one in, in, in 2011 season um and um so then that one you know that, that one wasn't really real it just you know it was a bound to to fall apart um and and then they, they those had their their names it was like the swoon and what, what was it in 11 it was the call the collapse the it was like or the collapse and then it was the swoon and or something in in 2012 <laughs> names because these things kept happening this team um and then um and in 2012 they you know they really started building, and these these guys started maturing, and and you know a lot of it was their pitching in 2011. I don't I think started to kind of fall apart, and in in their you know they they weren't capable of lasting you know this, and then in 2012 they they signed or they traded for Burnett, uh, for AJ Burnett, and um, that Martin, and and they got Russell Martin, um, and and I think that's what you know that that it really became a good team, and that was really the kind of the sad one because that should have been it, and again. And th that's when they were actually they were the best team in baseball in early July. Um, and he's like, oh my God, this is this is it. And everybody started getting excited. And then, <laughs> then August, you know, hits. And like, oh, not not God, <laughs> kidding me. This is this isn't even like mathematically possible. Um, you like <laughs> that like. And of course, they go into this swoon. I think twelve was the swoon or something. Um, and then you know they just start losing and losing again. And they go on this ridiculous. You know this losing streak, and then they 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 you know they get they're better, but they're still not at 500. And then 13, finally, you know, like okay. And, 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 and ironically, that uh, 2013 season, they started off like um, one in five or something like that. Um, and so everybody was like, oh, we we missed it, and here we go. There's gonna be you know 20 more losing seasons, and then like, oh my God, they started getting good, and here we go, it's, it's working, and everything's coming together, and then, you know, they finally, they were, they were so good that it was. They made the playoffs. They made the year. playoffs. They, they got in the wild card. Unfortunately, you know, when they finally did get good, and they finally became a winning team, you had to deal with the Cardinals, who were, you know, you know, would just kept winning the division, so they were still always chasing the Cardinals. Um, they got in the wild card game, and um, it was, it was amazing. I mean, if you if you stuck with that team, that that wild card game in, two th in 2013, you know, where the blackout game, where they, you know, or the fans of the place was, you know, I wasn't there unfortunately, but you know, I watched it on TV and 
it was just amazing to watch. And, 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 and they said, it was funny because they said this city isn't going to know how to deal with this. When, you know, a lot of the sportscasters, like, are, are they going to know how you act at a play? Like, get, like, they, like, you know, we're some, you know, they expansion team. Like, we don't know how to, you know, deal with, you know, we're, you know, not real fans. They, they don't know what it's like. And so, but then it happened against the, the Reds, this wild card team. We, we had the home, the wild card game. Um, and it was just, they it was on fire and they were so loud and they uh, Johnny Cueto for the Reds was a starting pitcher and they just tortured him the fans to the point you know where he's visibly rattled and he drops his his rosin bag and um, and, and then um, right after that you know he, he he gives up a home run to Russell Martin and you know the place just explodes so it was just like I said you know if you if you had been if you made it through this you know somehow survived this twenty as a fan and you got that was just that was the best, you know. Where was that bobblehead? <laughs> I should I should <laughs> tell you that he would not let me touch that chapter. He wanted to write it. <laughs> so he said we collaborated on so many things. He said not this chapter. This is mine. I've been waiting for this, so oh. he, he wrote it. So that so then they, they made it to the um, the, the next level and played uh, the Cardinals um, and into the division series um, and and you know most most I think baseball journal uh, writers thought they were done after that they would you know the cardinals would make quick work of them and actually went five games um and they held their own and they they almost made it to the next level um but it was just an incredible season and it was just nice payoff for matt yeah um and then and then they won for you know a couple more years and you know steven is this your first baseball book this is my first baseball book mm -hmm. yeah. have you caught the bug or did you get it out yeah, of your well, system on no this? no i think maybe i have the bug um, <laughs> <laughs> we've already been talking about well, he's, he's got to convince his mother to the let next me. one yeah now but now it's my wife too we have to convince <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, let, right. to let me do it um, yeah. also, I, I keep giving uh, that that classic danny glover line and i'm too old for this and <laughs> that, uh, but he keeps, he keeps coming up with these great topics yeah. uh, uh, pete how many books have you written uh, baseball books, uh, oh, let's see, um, three, and I've edited the Pirates readers. So I, I, I did a book about growing up in Pittsburgh in the 1950s called Growing Up with Clemente and did a star biography and, and uh, actually did one on baseball writing. So, so I've been, I've written a lot of things for the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. They've been very kind and they, they let me go back. <laughs> <laughs> and write about uh, the old days. Well, when you come out with your next book, we'll have to have you back. We oh, you're you're very kind. We've been speaking <laughs> with Richard Peterson and Stephen Peterson. They are the authors of this book, The Slide, Leyland, Bonds, and the Star-Crossed Pittsburgh Pirates. Thank you very much. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thank you. It was our pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.